What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are here. Uh, it is August. That means the signing deadline for draft picks has passed. And so we now have a little bit of a firmer, uh, clearer picture of what the college baseball season, what, what these teams' con- roster construction is going to look like moving forward. And that is part of what Joe and I are going to get into today, some of the surprises and not so, not so surprising surprises of the, the signing deadline, which no longer is, uh, it's not a huge event anymore. You Now the players sign so quickly after the draft, there's, there's just not a whole lot of waiting around until the deadline to see uh, what shakes loose. But still some things always shake loose. And this year, was no different. So we're going to get into that. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about our updated uh, 2023 top 25 version 2.0 now coming out of the draft now that we know who has signed and who has not signed. And we've got some more significant transfers that have happened uh, in the last couple of weeks since we first rolled out these uh, these 2023 rankings. Uh, so we're, we're going to get into all of that here today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, also because it is August, uh, it's, a lot, it's vacation time for a lot of people as uh, as we hit the the tail end of, of uh, the academic summer. Uh, I'm just back from the beach. You're about to go to the lake. Uh, so we're, uh, we're in that kind of mood here at the Baseball America College podcast. And I don't know, Joe. Is, is there something to be said for me going to the beach and, and you going to the lake? Is that is that expressing two different situations here? I don't know. Do you like the beach? Do you like the lake beach? What's your what's your vacation strategy with this? Yeah, I tend to be um, I tend to be more of a beach guy over a lake guy. I think part of that is having grown up on the Gulf Coast. I just think you know, kind of what you're that can kind of set you on a course what you kind of grew up with. But I tend to be more of a beach guy. Some of that is just because, I mean, yes, there are lakes in the South, but um, Beaches, obviously, you kind of con- it connotes warmth and it's sunshine and all that kind of stuff, which are things I like. You know, uh, it just so happens that my parents have retired and live uh, on a lake, and so like that's how I end up going to the lake more often than than I would have otherwise. Don't be wrong; I, I do enjoy a good, uh, you know, sitting out on my parents' dock and just kind of watching the lake and getting out on the boat and kind of tooling around a little bit on the boat. Also, they live in Lake Lake of the Ozarks, and anybody who's been there knows that it's um, pretty lively lake. Uh, that's one way to put it. Uh, lots of like, uh, <laughs> it's not really a retirement lake. I feel like, no, it's, it kind of tends to be now my, my, so one of the things about Lake of the Ozarks is that it's a, it, on a map, it looks like a really wide river because it's, it's, it's snakes. It's not like a lake, like, you know, you see like, uh, you know, like you would expect to see a lake on a map, like a relatively round ish body of water. <laughs> like it is not that, um, so there, 
lots of different, you can say Lake of the Ozarks and you could mean two very different places, both in terms of geography and in terms of like feel, they do tend to live in a quieter uh, portion of the lake. Uh, however, you are not far away from the areas that are big, you know, party areas of the lake. And so, but the positive spin of, of all of that, no matter, no matter how you view the, the party aspect of it or not. And, and believe me, when, when they first bought that house and I was in my, my early twenties, it was, Hey, you know, they're not that far from these party spots. Um, but now even as a, as a, someone appro- appro- in my, am I in my mid thirties at 34? I guess I kind of am, um, I'd as someone in, yeah, as someone in my mid thirties, uh, that I'm less inclined for to enjoy that part of it, but I do enjoy the, how many like boat up restaurants they have, like pretty good restaurants seen there in Lake of the Ozarks, um, relatively speaking, what you, and what you might expect in kind of a resort vacation type area. And a lot of the restaurants are boat up, which is very nice. You just kind of, you know, boat up to them and you tie off and you go in and eat and then you come back and it's, it sure beats like a driving commute. Sometimes the driving is faster, but you know, it's more fun to be on the boat and you see a little more on the boat. So, um, but anyway, I, you know, I'm more of a beach guy than a lake guy, but I, but I do enjoy my time at the lake because, you know, there's family there and, and they get to enjoy that. And it's also just different than living here in North Carolina. The beaches are pretty accessible. My wife and I go down to the, the beach for, you know, little weekends or even we've even done just some there and back day trips to the beach. Um, so I, I think some of it too, is that it's just a little different from what you see here. Um, you know, what's available to you day to day. So but uh, looking forward to it. Definitely looking forward to it. It's uh, I think the timing of it is such that you and I talked about this last week about, you know, this is kind of uh, the end of summer, but for many people, because school is starting back up. And so if you have kids, it can very much feel like the end of summer and starting fall and football is, is right around the corner and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, for, for Teddy and I and other people who <laughs> were in Omaha, just like, <laughs> five or six weeks ago like it still does feel like we are in the middle of summer here so this is really in a lot of ways feels like with, with omaha and in the draft and all that stuff it really does feel like this is the first real opportunity to to, to get away and, and and do a little vacation yeah it's a good midsummer break yeah i think that's right uh all right so the uh the deadline was on monday uh i was monitoring some of it from the beach because you know what do you do on the beach anyway you look at your phone half the time if you're not on the if you're not on the water, I mean, you could read a physical book, but I read most of my books on a screen anyway. So, deadline came, uh, and three top ten picks, top ten round picks, did not sign, which is about average for where we are these days. Um, two of them were third rounders: Oklahoma State's Nolan McLean and Florida's Brandon Sprout, and then tenth rounder from Wichita State, Brock Roden. Those were three guys that did not sign with Sprout. That was kind of telegraphed. I would say starting at the, the start of the weekend, that was really when it became apparent, like, Oh, the Mets Mets might not have enough money for Brandon Sprout. Um, don't know the full extent of how it got to that situation, but like it, it was not a surprise on Monday when Sprout ultimately went unsigned. McLean was more of a, uh, like the Orioles had money going into Monday and it seemed like it might happen. Uh, you know, it seemed like maybe it was just a matter of time. Ultimately it did not get done. Jim Callis of MLB.com formerly of baseball America said that there was some dispute about what was shown in the uh, physical. Don't know anything more to it than that. Um, so McLean is going back to Oklahoma state. 
And those two guys are guys that can really affect next season. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about some other guys here. Andrew Walters did not sign. Uh, Quinn Matthews did not sign. Those guys were both picked in the teens. But those were guys that I told you, that Joe and I told you on our post-draft podcast, like probably weren't going to sign given where they were picked. And what do you know? They didn't. Um, Sprout and McLean, as as top 10 rounders, you expect them to sign. That's that's what happens in uh, in all but a very few cases. And Sprout going back to Florida, I, I guess we can start there, Joe. He was the top unsigned player. Um, that's a really big deal. They are now able to pair Sprout with Hurston Waldrop, their transfer from Southern Miss. And they have as good of a one-two punch in the rotation as you'll find anywhere outside of Knoxville now. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it's amazing to think about just the circumstances wouldn't have had to have been that much different for that, neither of those guys to end up in, in Florida, right? I mean, Hurston Waldrop just two years ago probably doesn't transfer because he's not a graduate transfer. So likely not going to transfer. So that doesn't happen. Um, and then, you know, typically, like you say, typically guys in Brandon Sprout's spot typically go. Um, and Brandon Sprout being someone who's been a high profile, you know, he got drafted out of high school and, and he was another a guy top 10 you, rounder out of high school at that right. seventh rounder. And so sometimes it's kind of only natural if you're someone in his position where you get drafted high out of high school, but you decide, yeah, I'm going to go bet on myself. And then you get drafted as high as he did, you know, after three years at, at Florida, you kind of, I think it's only natural to kind of be like, okay, I don't, it's, it's time for me to, this is what I've been, this is what I was trying to accomplish by going to school instead of signing out of high school. So let's, um, let's just get this show on the road. Um, now, if the money wasn't there, ultimately, like that's obviously adds a wrinkle to the the whole deal. But um, I, I say all that to say, like there, there is a, a very, um, a not that strange scenario uh, where Florida ends up with neither of these two guys. And it's really a team that we're looking at going into next year, wondering, not that they're not going to have talented pitchers, but hey, they're totally rebuilding here. Now you go into it with Sprode, who was really solid last year. I think uh, just speaking for myself, was probably overlooked how good he was, you know, especially stepping into a position where once Hunter Barco gets injured, he has to step in and be the guy for Florida. And he he really does a nice job. And then, um, you know, with with Waldrop, with those two, you've got, I mean, two truly two of the best arms, right? I mean, Sprout's a guy who's fastball average 96, uh, nearly 96, touched 100. Hurston Waldrop's a guy who can get it up near triple digits, you know, in conversations I've had about collegiate national team stuff in the last couple of weeks, you know, his name is always one on the top of mind. When you start talking about, Hey, who's got the best fastball, like who's got just the best arm of, of this group. Waldrop's name is, is right there. So you, you go from a scenario where maybe none of this happens to a scenario where, yeah, I mean, you're looking at a, a rotation that at a bare minimum is going to be one of the best one, two punches in the country. But if Sprout takes a step forward, Waldrop takes a step forward. Um, suddenly you're talking about, a historically good one-two punch and perhaps a historically good rotation at Florida. Well, it's difficult to say historically good at Florida when they had Sinner and Coart not sure. that long ago and Fado and Dunning, not even Dunning is a one-two punch, but Shore and Puck. And uh, but yeah, the the point is though, like I, I I say that to say like well, Florida, like there are all these other examples of one-two punches, but like this one could be like that. I think you're right, Joe. Um, at, at almost any other school, you just say like, oh yeah, this is like the best one, two punch, uh, potentially in, in program history. And in Florida, it's like, well, maybe it is, uh, 
these other guys were really good, but like, I, again, I don't think those two guys have to be far off from what uh, Florida fans have, have seen at times in the past. I mean, at his best, Sproat is incredible. uh, And he was at his best a lot last year. Um, He threw an incredible game in the SEC tournament uh, that I was at and um, against South Carolina, that was, that was eight and a third of uh, one run ball. Um, and as I recall, he took a no hitter into like the seventh inning in that game or something. Uh, it was, it was very impressive. And so to have that guy coming back who went nine and four, three forty one last year uh, over 90 innings, like that's uh it's just a huge, huge asset at, at the front of the rotation. And Florida really had just came out of the draft incredibly well we talked about them as a a winner uh initially uh and their recruiting class held together very well and um uh, after the draft you could tell that like well bt riopel is coming back and like that's a big deal and josh rivera didn't get picked and um you know colby halter is probably coming back and like all of that has come to pass colby halter um is now an all-star on cape cod this summer and now you add Sprout to it and it just feels like, you know, that Florida has taken its lumps just like every top program has at times in the draft, but it just feels like this was one of the years where everything came together for the Gators uh, in the draft. And obviously that is going to mean very big things for, for them next year. Um, I am a little like Nolan McLean is, is really good. Uh, like that, that is, that is like, just number one thing with, with McLean at, at Oklahoma State. But Joe, what does getting him back mean for Oklahoma State? And I guess part of this question is, how are they going to use him? And I, that's unanswerable right now. He's a two-way talent. There's a lot of talent in both, both as a hitter and as a pitcher, a lot of power both ways. It could They could use him in any number of ways. They could use him exactly as they used him this year. But I don't, because of that, you know, the, the, the aspect of, of the two-wayness of him, I'm just a little less certain what exactly it means that Oklahoma State gets him back next year. Yeah, I think it's important in that he gives them a – so the thing about him is that they've got one of the best hitters and pitchers maybe that didn't sign, right? I mean, he gives them a, a backbone in their lineup that I think they kind of need. Um, they've got kind of spark-pluggy type guys like Marcus Brown, Zach Gerhart, Rock Reggio – guys like that. Um, but who's the guy, you know, I mean, you're not going to ask him to do, you know, uh, to, to be what he did last year, plus Griffin Dorshing like that, that would be a historically good season in college baseball, but you know, they, they need assuming he was leaving along with, you know, a guy like Griffin Dorshing, like you, Jake Thompson, like you just, you knew that was going to be a question for Oklahoma state. Now they always tend to answer that question in a positive way, but now with McLean back, you have you have a specific answer of, oh, okay. I mean, this is a guy that hit 19 home runs last year. And and are there problems? Yes. I mean, he struck out 107 times. I I at the Big 12 tournament, somebody talking to me, somebody who who would who would know and know these things and whose opinions I trust said, you know, when Nolan McLean is really going bad, and he he had several sections of last season where he wasn't swinging it very well, a pitcher really has to run into his bat path. Um, for him to hit the ball hard. Um, but that being said, the numbers were the numbers and he hit 19 home runs and can run the ball out of the ballpark, um, any ballpark in the country and powered up, you know, uh, 110 plus exit velocities on, you know, on, on those hardest hit balls, like all of that is true. And so 
Oklahoma State can now kind of build a lineup knowing they've got that piece in the middle of it. I think what kind of makes this interesting, though, is as you allude to is, you know, what do they do with him on the mound? You know, um, at a bare minimum, he seems kind of tailor made for um, being, you know, a Trevor Martin, a, a Roman Fanselker, guys like that, a, a, a reliever with good stuff who can be stretched out to throw multiple innings at a bare minimum. It seems like he's capable of that, but that's not too far off from the role he had last year, but now they have Jerron Watts Brown, a transfer from long beach state in the rotation. Can McLean be the second piece in that rotation? Cause yes, I mean, the fastball is kind of what Nolan McLean is, is known for, and he, he can run it up, you know, rent, rent it up to 98 miles an hour last year could maybe touch triple digits. Um, but he's also got two breaking balls that spin at sometimes 3000 plus RPM. And if he can command all of that, I mean, that's the makings, you know, plus his frame, that's the makings of a guy who could be a starting pitcher. So can he be that? Um, It's why I look at him. Brandon Sproke gives you a lot of certainty for Florida, but Nolan McClain, if he comes back and can clean up some of the offensive stuff, but be as productive as he was last year. And also, oh, by the way, he's going to pitch in Oklahoma State's rotation and be solid there. um, you know, he could end up being the most impactful of this group of players that ends up returning for the 2023 season. That's certainly on the table. Uh, the The ceiling for him is quite high, as it always has been. And yeah, I, I'm just very curious to see what Oklahoma State does in terms of rebuilding that rotation since uh, they lost Campbell and they lost Medeiros uh, and they lost Bryce Osmond, who did sign late. Um I don't know if that was at the deadline or the day before, but he went down late and, and ultimately did sign. But those guys all gone. Uh, like you said, Watts Brown is coming in from Long Beach State and he will slide right into the, the Cowboys rotation. But they they got innings. And if they think McLean can take him, uh, that would be fascinating to see how it works. Um, now, he being a two-way guy, like how to manage all of that, like that that comes into it all. And you're not taking his bat out of the lineup because, again, he he did lead the the team in home runs last year with 19. Uh, but it's uh, it's a big piece for Oklahoma State. And considering how much they did lose in the draft, starting with Justin Campbell and just you know players, you know like George Rain and and Jake Thompson were just older players that matriculated out and yeah they're in pro ball, but they were they were kind of gone regardless. You, you look at everything that Oklahoma state has to replace and to know that the McLean is coming back uh, is a big deal. And I also think it, it's not, not a big deal that the the pieces they do have coming back, Marcus Brown, Rock Riccio and, and McLean, like they get their infield back. I, I, I think that that, that could be something that that's meaningful uh, next year as well. On the opposite side of the ledger, partially because McLean did not end up signing. The Orioles had the money to, uh, to sign Carter Young and he was transferring from Vanderbilt to LSU. And it looked going into the weekend, like he was going to get to Baton Rouge and that you could put him in the middle of the Tigers infield next year. Uh, By Monday, however, he had a deal for more than a million dollars as a 17th round draft pick. And he now is uh, is going to Baltimore. Obviously, like he was gone from Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt's moved on. But LSU did think they were getting him. And they do kind of need a middle infielder. Um, in, in 
I say need in, in the sense that LSU needs anything, but um, you know, the middle of their infield last year, uh, you know, with, with, or specifically shortstop Jordan Thompson was never really settled defensively. Um, like LSU clearly was looking to upgrade the middle of their infield in some ways, since they added both Yun and Jack Pineda out of the transfer portal, they end up getting neither as Pineda signed as a 13th rounder. Um, so now Thompson's back in the middle of LSU's infield. Nobody's going to feel sorry for LSU about this. They have options beyond him. Like they need a second baseman now. Uh, but it, it does look a little bit different without either of those transfers uh, coming in. Yeah. I mean, and you can, you can also, yes. I mean, no one should feel sorry for LSU with the, the talent they have coming in, but a, it, I mean, they're, you kind of figured they were going to get, I mean, option A is them both getting to campus and you have a good problem to have where, you know, you could spin one of them off into second base or figure something else out. Um, option B is okay, which was kind of seemed like the most likely option is you get one of the two. Um, the, uh, you know, this is now they're on option C. So there's that. It's also just like, if you were going to nitpick LSU last year, like infield defense, uh, you know, Trey Morgan saves a lot of errors at first base. Let's be honest. I'll, like, I'll say the, the folks in Baton Rouge would not say this is a nitpick. Well, sure. I mean, they, well, there, I would argue there is nothing more maddening as a fan of like a baseball team than like, I mean, I guess having bullpen issues is, is probably up there, but just not being able to field the ball, like to, and make, you know, making errors on more routine plays than the opposition is like a really maddening thing to have happen. So I guess I, I kind of get it, but you know, they have Trey Morgan at first base, which saves who saves a lot of errors. Um, you know, spoiler alert for, you know, my collegiate national team coverage, like, like he's the best defensive infielder on the collegiate national team. And typically that's not a first base thing. Like you're typically looking at middle infielders there, but that's the feedback I got is, Hey, it's, it's actually Trey Morgan. Uh, regardless, um, you know, what Pineda and Carter young would have also brought in addition to, yes, they both have offensive upside in different ways was a little bit of steadiness to that infield defense. And now, um, you know, Jordan Thompson is, has had is, his issues. Um, and, and you have question marks outside of that. So it, it does kind of perhaps exacerbate um, an issue that's going to carry over from last year. Again, you know, LSU will be fine. However, um, it is a question mark now and something that is, is going to have to be addressed one way or the other. And, uh, you know, that'll be certainly a storyline to watch as next season approaches. My guess right now is that Gavin Guidry, who is a top 100 player on the BA 500, but uh, is coming to school, um, that he's your second baseman next year for LSU. And that Thompson is is shortstop. Uh, obviously, the portal, like there's still players out there. Um, they're probably, I'm sure, there are junior college players that are uncommitted. Uh, if Jay Johnson wants to go, just try and find a glove. Um, you know, we saw things like that happen at Arizona, uh, where the rest of the lineup is hitting like crazy good, and then there's just a shortstop in there like that. That is something that we have seen out of Jay Johnson teams before. Uh, but with Gidry and with Thompson, I feel like they'll be fine next year. Um, I we'll, we'll just have to see how uh, how the rest of that plays out. Uh, and since we're talking LSU right now, let's just acknowledge that uh, Paul Skeens, uh, two-time first-team All-American Paul Skeens, uh, committed on Friday, Saturday, someday over the weekend, uh, committed to transfer to LSU. So the Tigers add what at the time was the top 
uncommitted player in uh, in the portal, and Joe and I can mostly Joe can try and suss out whether Paul Skeens is better than Tommy White uh, for for the transfer rankings. But LSU adding a a substantial piece with uh, with Paul Skeens committing to uh, to spend next year there as well. Yeah, I mean LSU will regardless have one and two on the uh, the transfers the transfer rankings this off season. So heck of a heck of an off season in that regard. And really, like it is kind of amazing when you think about you know you lose Carter Young, you lose Jack Pineda, you lose Dylan Tabrock. Like it hasn't been perfect, but they just you know they they did so so much big game hunting in the transfer portal that they're still going to end up with the one and two players in the the overall rankings and like. I haven't done this full accounting, but like given that, like they're probably going to be number one in the transfer class rankings. Yeah, like how they could they, sure. how could they not be? Well, the, the tricky part <laughs> is that your like, is top 10 too. Isn't I it? guess that's true. Like that's your herd is, is, in, is he might be in the top. I mean, certainly top 10. He may have been in the top five at one point, but as he schemes, honestly might've bumped him out of the top five on it. That might've honestly been what happened, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the tricky part there is like Tennessee, you got a pretty good class too, but you know, they've, you know, some of that has evaporated as well with the draft and, and what have you. Anyway, regardless, that's a conversation for a for a different day. But yeah, Skeens is obviously that on the mound is a, a potential game changer. You know, offensively, I get varying opinions on his bat, but he's he's a good hitter. He's a good college hitter. Um, I got some positive some positive stuff on his catching. Like honestly, so like he's a guy who I think there has been an assumption by some, maybe myself included, that like yeah, ultimately he's kind of like a a DH pitcher two-way guy. And he did a lot of DHing at Air Force. Um, but I've gotten actually more positive feedback on his catching and in, in the little snippets that people have seen than, than I thought I would get, frankly. So uh, maybe there is some upside there as well. And look, if you're a guy with the, his kind of power who can also catch, like the 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 um, the jury might still be out on exactly what he is as a pro. Right now, the pitching is is well ahead of it, but uh, there might be a future as, you know, as we're a little more open to two-way guys. Like if he proves he can actually catch, and hit with some power in the SEC, then who knows? We'll have to see. The uh, catching pitcher double is next to impossible. I feel oh, yeah. like, yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, Weeders did it, and Skeens has done it at Air Force, and I think they'll probably catch him some at LSU. But he I would not expect him to be the full time catcher. They're bringing in two very talented freshman catchers, but I, I do like the fact that they have a now a more experienced option, even if he's not going to be the full-time catcher and Hey, maybe that that's the intention uh, or, or the way that it'll play out. We'll see. But uh, I, I just think that having that experience does matter um, going into the year, knowing that you would just have freshmen behind the plate or that you would be trying to trying to primarily rely on freshmen behind the plate. Like wouldn't be my favorite situation, but to, to have that, ability to put schemes back there uh whenever you need to like i i think that's uh that's a really big deal and obviously it it's a tremendous impact to their pitching staff no matter how they uh choose to use him he's started he's closed he he's gonna pitch impact innings it's just a matter of how those innings are going to come that's actually just quickly and then we can move on that's actually an interesting thing and, and we'll never know this and Tennessee fans can lament that and LSU fans can rejoice in that. But if he ends up at Tennessee, who is also in pursuit of Paul Skeens along with any number of, of other name, a power program. And they were after him at some point. Um, if he's at Tennessee with their rotation being what it was like in Tennessee being in as in need of a catcher as much as they are, because they also had, Jack Alexander, a transfer from Austin P, uh, sign as an undrafted free agent. 
Um, you know, and obviously Evan Russell has moved on and the Evan Russell experience was not always a smooth one behind the plate anyway. Um, there might've been more value to be had for them to have Skeens as a full-time catcher and then just move him to closer. And like, because then you can balance the workload a little bit better as opposed to having him start and then try to catch the other two days, um, which is a lot. So that I mean, would be, like, that would like be I, interesting. Like I posited with Reggie Crawford when he was committed there, like the way that their rotation set up, like you could just pitch that guy on Tuesday. Right. And, yeah, that's true. Uh, he could have also gone Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could have you could have tried to do like the best of all worlds, like start him on Tuesday, and that's the only time you're gonna pitch him and he catches all weekend. Like uh I mean it would have been a lot regardless, but um, you know, there there might have been a way to to go about it that way. But yeah, Tennessee could have could have really used the, the catching bit of it, uh, and the pitching. <laughs> like I Right now, I think you talk to pro guys, and it's like, well, the arm, the the pitching is is the primary thing, and, and the hitting is like the fun bonus that you get. I feel like for some some college programs, and not just Tennessee, uh, if they had gotten to him, it would have been more like, well, the catching is the primary thing, and and the pitching is the fun bonus that we have. Yeah, yeah, that would have been an interesting interesting situation to see play out and how that how that goes. But um, as is, you know, of course it you know, we'll still get some of that because, you know, LSU is in a situation where they, you know, we, we are going to figure out how they're going to have to do that because trying to start in, because we, we've seen typically with the two-way catcher pitcher thing, it's a lot of catcher closer kind of stuff. Um, catcher starter is particularly tough when you consider how draining starting a weekend game is. So we'll see. Uh, all right. So those were the big, big, surprises and just general storylines from monday joe uh however i know you rounded us up some other ones what else uh stood out to you and i mean i feel like we've hit on walters as much as we need to but but what else uh on previous podcasts i should say not that this podcast has dived into the andrew walters situation of miami uh but what what else jumped to mind uh for, for you on monday yeah the walters thing just quickly is is interesting because it doesn't seem like there's necessarily like a lot of times it's like telegraph, like, okay, yes, he wants to be a starter. And like, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily like a condition of this. Um, there are other things pulling at him a little bit. One is that, you know, he only had two seasons at Miami. So he, you know, draft eligible sophomore situation. His brother is arriving at Miami. He wants to play with his brother. That's not to say he won't start. Like, I think that is on the table. Um, it just doesn't seem like a telegraphed move like you've seen in years past with closers who come back. So um, obviously he's an asset to Miami, regardless of what he does. The stuff is like, it might be the, when you look at velocity plus some of the, like the, the, the behind the, the behind the scenes metrics, if you will, like might have the best fastball in the country. Um, so clearly an asset. So we will, um, we'll see how that goes, but that's kind of, Oh, and just quickly, the Orioles just had a wild, like we've mentioned the Orioles so much here because they had Walters, they had Nolan McClain, they had Carter Young. Um, Jay were just all like a wild couple of weeks for the Orioles dealing with the draft. Um, this is not a draft podcast though. So we will, uh, uh, we talked about Quinn, you know, Quinn Matthews, like, I think it's big just because it, they're able to, if they want to, you don't have to put it on Drew Dowd or try to convert Ryan Bruno to a starter. If you don't want, like you can run out with Quinn Matthews as your Friday guy. And I think it takes a little pressure off everybody. So I think that's huge. Um, the most overlooked thing though, that, that I, I wrote about and, and you, you tipped me off to, to the, it wasn't just a couple, just one guy, it was a couple guys, but, um, 
Rutgers got some draftees to campus. And like, that's a wild statement to have made. And five years ago, I would have assumed that's not a thing that could ever happen, but they got a Canadian catcher named Hugh Pinckney, who was a seven, 17th round pick. Um, and again, prep, getting a prep catcher to, to campus, like not the easiest thing to do because the value put on catchers. And then Drew Conover, a Seton Hall transfer who was taken in the 20th round. And, and yes, we're talking about late round draft picks here, but again, a catcher being particularly valuable. And also all Drew Conover has done is gone to the Cape Cod league and looked like one of the best relievers in the country. Um, he's like super nat, like low slot sinker, like in the mid nineties from the right side, that looks just really nasty. Um, so I, the big picture thing here though, is that when you consider how good Rutgers was last year, you consider the talent they have on the roster right now, including Ryan Lasko, who's probably getting drafted in the first couple of rounds next season. And then now they're starting to get draftees to campus. We've talked about this before, but the idea that Rutgers kind of is maybe a little flash in the pan is like clearly not the case. Um, this program continues to show signs that this is a different deal now. Um, and getting those couple of guys to campus um, is, is the biggest piece of, of evidence to that. Um, I'm sure you will have a reaction to that, but I also just wanted to say, cause I, I, I did, I did this out of order. Brock Roden is a, is a weird one at Wichita state. Um, not only because you kind of expect a 10th round pick who is a Juco transfer to Wichita state, the Juco transfer guys tend to be a little more signable after their one year um, at the division one level. Um, but also it was reported by Taylor Eldridge, the Wichita Eagle that he was offered full slot value at as a 10th round pick and he didn't sign. And I'm not saying there's anything nefarious going on on either side. I'm just saying like, that is a weird set of circumstances to have a player not sign, get drafted in the 10th round, get full slot value offered to you and then to turn that down. So assuming all that reporting is correct and I have no reason to believe it's not like that just is kind of a weird set of circumstances to have happen to lead to this. Uh, yeah, definitely not the typical thing. And, um, uh, without re- doing my own reporting on this, uh, you know, who knows, but it, uh, doesn't reflect well on the A's. I would say that they allowed that to happen to a 10th rounder. Um, but good for Wichita state. Uh, we'll see, uh, we'll see what that means for them moving forward. I do think that, you know, we're talking about first baseman, um, you know, uh, we, we, or you know, the corner bats. We, we we've talked about that as as a, a something in the past where it feels like the they those guys can be more valuable in college than they are in professional baseball right now. And to that end, Ethan Lawn not signing as the last pick of the draft. He was never going to sign. Agreed, um, yeah. But that guy coming back for Arizona State, an Arizona State team that's going to look completely different next year. I do feel like that could be uh, significant for um, for ASU. I mean, uh, what happens with ASU is going to almost entirely depend on their their transfers and whether they come good or not. But getting his bat back in the lineup uh, is uh, not an insignificant thing for the Sun Devils. Great call. Um, he was one of the names that was on the the list I put together of like, hey, here's some college players to watch who maybe kind of fringy who who could come back next year and, and have a big impact. And yeah, so you're right to, to call him out. It was Arizona state has to be tickled about it because it, it really is a perfect storm that created that situation. One is the positional part of it. You're absolutely right. Like he's played some third base, but he at the next level is probably a first baseman. Um, and also he was dealing with a wrist. In, I believe it was a wrist injury 
largely like throughout the entirety of 2022. Sometimes he played, sometimes he didn't. He was like kind of in and out. And so he didn't really produce either. And so it really is kind of a perfect storm to and him being a draft eligible sophomore also did a, make it more of a softer landing place for him to come back to ASU. And, you know, ASU is going to be a really tough team to peg for the reasons you enumerate um, next year, but they're going to be talented. And Ethan Long as a freshman was one of the very best power hitters in the country. Um, you know, his numbers were not Spencer Torkelson freshman year, but they were pretty doggone close. So um, that that's a great one to call out because he he's exactly the type of player we were trying to pinpoint before the draft of, you know, could he come back? Ethan Long specifically, I'm talking about, could he come back and hit 20 home runs next year? Like, absolutely. He's got that kind of power. So um, that that's a huge one for sure. So uh, that's kind of your draft signing day recap. Joe also provided that in written form. If you're interested, that's over at baseballamerica.com. Uh, all of that, of course, informs the uh, 2023 top 25 and just 2023 generally. Uh, so we're going to talk about how that all has affected it, what the early top 25 for 2023 looks like. Uh, we're going to get to that here in a second. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, so let's get into our 2023 top 25. This is really the first time we've addressed this on the podcast that we did release one edition of this already. It was just right before the draft, and um, I probably should have gotten it out a little faster and then could spend more time on it. But anyway, we were busy previewing the draft on the podcast, and so we uh, we just kind of agreed to spin it forward and we'll uh we would catch it on version 2.0 which is what we're doing now and if you read version one you know that tennessee was number one and uh, lsu was number two and now coming out of the last couple weeks uh that is flipped and lsu now is number one and some of that is a reflection of what happened for lsu over the last couple weeks you know, we talked about them getting skeins. Uh, the we have talked before on the podcast about how well the recruiting class fared 
in the draft uh, and how they're bringing the most BA 500 guys to campus in all likelihood. Uh, so all of that is positive for LSU and overcomes the fact that Turbach, Pineda, and Yun all have signed. But some of this is also a reflection of what's happened for Tennessee, which, while it wasn't terribly negative, also just wasn't as positive. Joe mentioned that Jack Alexander signed. He was committed to uh, to come there and catch next year. Uh, I had thought that maybe they would sneak one of their position players through the draft. That did not happen. They lost um, quite a bit of talent through the draft, of course. And um, I mean, look, Tennessee is still going to be really good next year, and and they got you know some key relievers back uh, in, in Camden Sewell, for instance. That that was a bit of a surprise, even as maybe uh, maybe you would have thought Will Mabry would have been the reliever coming back instead of Camden Sewell. But as it was, uh, things worked out the way they did. But I think LSU's ascension here is mostly because of what they did. But some of this is also a reflection of like Tennessee did take a little bit of a different hit in the draft than I thought they might. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, with LSU, it's just the talent acquisition piece. Um, you know, while there's always question marks when you're, you're banking on talent acquisition, like my goodness, we talked about the top two players in the transfer portal. Plus, oh, by the way, Christian Little, um, you know, not just all the t- – BA 500 guys, but getting three top 100 BA 500 guys to campus. Um, you know, they don't need all of that to go. I mean, plus of course, you know, right. Dylan Cruz, the potential first overall pick in 2023 and, and Trey Morgan and, you know, some of the, the pitchers they have coming back, like they don't need all of that new talent to necessarily uh, be, uh, you know, hitting on all cylinders right out of the gate for them to, um, you know, for them to be even still a much improved team over the very good team they were last year. So, yeah, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, this would have gone a little bit differently, but just, you know, the, the, the cherries on top of getting so much of their recruiting class through plus getting Paul Skeens to commit all of that just kind of ended up putting them over the top. And, but ultimately I think we can, we can really agree that there is a, a clear one, two here because with Tennessee, it's, I mean, look, I mean, they're bringing back their entire rotation that, you know, we've alluded to it a few times, but Burns, Beam, Dolander, all back, you know, and those are, um, you know, Dolander is looking at being a first round pick. Um, this coming draft, Beam and Burns could could both be first round picks when they come out as well. Um, so um, that's obviously going to be a strength. I, I don't see another rotation one through three in the country that's going to be able to, on paper, any close to being any better than that. And then, you know, one of the strengths of Tennessee last year was we talked about it quite a bit is like, look, they've got they've got guys in the bench like Blake Burke and Christian Moore who would be hitting right in the middle of the lineup for 99 percent of the other teams around college baseball. And they're mostly on the bench here. And then Jared Dickey's a guy who was doing great and then went down with an injury and they didn't really miss a beat. Well, this is going to be the time for those guys, Burke and Moore and, and a fully healthy Jared Dickey to come back and prove that, you know, all of that talk about the position player depth that Tennessee had, um, you know, uh, come back next year and prove that they were ready for what we thought they'd be ready for, which is full-time starring roles and to be some of the best players in the SEC. So uh, Tennessee really strong too, obviously, and, and did give us a clear, at least in my mind, I think in yours as well, a pretty clear one, two here. And then we start talking about everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. And 
some of what I'm looking at with Tennessee too is that I really trust their player development. You know, you you have seen what those this coaching staff has been able to do with guys like Trey Lipscomb over you know a period of a couple of years, Joel Ortega. Um, you know, th- those guys got better when they were at Tennessee. They they got better. They they weren't starting. They weren't stars of, as freshmen, uh, but they ended their careers. At, you know, in at in Lipscomb, Lipscomb's case as a star and some of their other cases just as really good regulars. And so I assume that that's going to continue here and that Christian Moore and, and Burke and, and uh, you know, all the, all the rest of these guys that were more depth pieces a year ago are going to be ready for their starring role this year. And I mean, yeah, there is, there's some assumptions baked into that and all the rest of it, but I, I do think this is going to be a good offense, but I, when, when you look at Tennessee, the number one thing I think about is the whole rotation is back, and you know, yes, they lost some very important bullpen arms like Redmond Walsh, the program's like all-time saves leader, and Ben Joyce, who throws 105. But also, Kirby Connell was actually like, if you look at it, one of the maybe the best reliever on that team. He's back. Camden Sewell's back. Uh, Seth Halverson was supposed to be an impact transfer last year and got hurt, but he's back and healthy now. So like they're, they're going to be quite, quite good on the mound yet again this year. And uh, so, yeah, I I think it's a clear one, two with those two teams and uh, LSU has, you know, kind of pulled ahead, but uh, that's definitely where, where you're starting right now. And from there we can have more of a, a conversation about, well, how do you line these teams up and those teams up and, and all the rest of that? But but I like you said, Joe, I think it's a pretty clear one too with uh with LSU and Tennessee. The top team we have right now that's not those two is Stanford. And maybe that's a bit of a surprise to some folks. I, I know Florida has a lot of buzz right now, and look, I mean we got Florida in the top five with them too. Um Miami is a little buzzy right now, certainly with uh, with Walters coming back, and, and we had them uh, very. We had them sixth uh, in the first edition. They're still there. Uh, you know, Louisville looks like a, a team to beat in the ACC. Uh, but Joey, we, we kind of focused on Stanford, and you know, yeah, they lost the Pac-12 Pitcher of the Year in Alex Williams, controversial pick for Pac-12 Pitcher of the Year, but he was the Pac-12 Pitcher of the Year nonetheless. And they lost Brock Jones. They lost Cody Huff. Uh, but you look at that lineup and, you know, we touched on it, what that pitching staff looks like now that Quinn Matthews is back. This is a very formidable team that's coming off of back-to-back College World Series appearances. And, uh, I mean, I, I see no reason why Stanford's going to slow down in 23. No, I'm, I'm with you. Um, you know, <clears throat> such a differentiator with Stanford versus some other teams we see out on the West coast that, that stands out about them is when you really start to oftentimes look at the teams in, in the PAC 12 or just from conferences other than the sec is sometimes those teams don't match up in, in terms of you, you might have good starting pitching or some nice college players or your depth being what it is, but who are your just kind of super toolsy guys who should probably already be in pro ball, who just kind of happen to be in college baseball because they wanted to go the college route or what have you. The SEC tends to get those guys, tends to get those guys, you know, um, by the boatload. 
um, you know, we see it with this most recent class that they've got, you know, all those guys coming to campus, but Stanford, Stanford has those guys, whether it's Braden Montgomery, a, a two way guy who is, you know, just absolutely electric in both regards, right? He run, he can hit the ball 500 feet. He can throw almost hundred miles an hour, super good athlete. Uh, Tommy Troy, who plays every position on the field and is a great athlete in his own right. And is about as electric as it gets. And Drew Bowser is, is, has some of those similar qualities, right? And they have Ryan Bruno, who's, um, you know, a high, high upside arm who hasn't quite put it all together. And they just had Brock Jones who also fits into this mold, right? Um, those are, um, those are the types of players that you need when you're starting to stack up not just within your own conference, but also just nationally when you're going to be in Omaha and, and you're going to face off against some of these, these SEC clubs that are really, really stacked with talent. The question with Stanford, and this is not something that we can know now, it's something we're just going to have to wait on is, you know, frankly, the last two years they've gotten to Omaha and no one really doubts their talent necessarily, but they've, they've gotten to Omaha and they just haven't really dug in. Right. I mean, they, they made a little run in 2021. They had the they had Vanderbilt on the ropes and, you know, they, they had to go back to Brennan Beck and we know how that went. Um, but they go 0 and 2 last year. I'm not saying there's like a little bit of a boy that cried wolf thing going here because I'm a, I'm a big believer in Stanford as well. But they they are going to have to maybe prove something once they get into the postseason. Now they've established that, hey, we are you know, we're not only right there with UCLA, but right now we're actually surpassing UCLA in terms of what we're doing on the field. They're, they've got back to Omaha, then they did it again. Now it's like, okay, but can you make a run towards a national title? Because frankly, the last two years, they just haven't quite looked um, comfortable in Omaha. And, you know, and they, they've gone, I think, a combined one and four. And so that's that's what you get when that happens. But that's the question I have about them. But that's obviously for a, a down-the-road thing. In terms of the talent, they should be right there. I do also want to note that Stanford uh, brought their whole recruiting class they got them all through the the draft, so they're adding more of those talents that you're talking about. The the guys that maybe they should be in Pro Bowl, like Malcolm Moore, is arguably the best like high school catcher in this year's draft class. Um, he'll be there next year and uh, just adds a, another big time bat to that lineup. So a lot to a lot to be excited about there. We talked about Florida. I will say though about Florida is that this is a team that has made probably the biggest jump like in in terms of places they did make the biggest jump but but definitely made the biggest jump i think in our minds as well uh since we started this exercise i joe and i at one point looked at we're looking at florida in early july and we're like okay so they're gonna be good but like who are the who, who like who are they really building around here besides langford and you know brandon neely's a was a really good pitcher for them down the stretch but is he ready to be like that guy? And well, since then, like we talked about all these guys coming back and well, now Brandon Neely, if that's your number three, like, and he pitches the way he did down the stretch uh, or in the second half of last season, like, wow, that's uh, that's a, that's a really big deal. And having him be your Sunday starter versus your Friday starter is um, there. It's night and day in, in many respects. So uh they have a guy in White Laneford who could be a top five, top 10 pick in next year's draft. Some people think he could even be the number one overall pick. I think that's maybe a little lofty right now, but you know, who knows? He has, he had an incredible season this year. We'll see what he has uh, in store for next year. We talked about their one, two punch in the rotation. 
they have so much experience coming back now with uh, with a halter and Rivera and Riapel uh, and Sprout all saying no to pro ball. Like it, it's it's a big deal that all of this is coming together. Um, and they have uh, they have a bunch of good freshmen coming in, as you would expect at Florida. I, it, it what they were or what they what we were projecting them to be on like July one or July third versus what they are today on August third. It, it's it's truly remarkable. Yeah, it, it feels like a team that has had a lot come together. There's always a, a team or two like this at this time of the summer where maybe there were some question marks before, but you you kind of get one or two pieces that kind of on their own, setting Sprout aside, because he's obviously an order of magnitude more important, but you, you know, you get little bits of information here and there of guys who are coming back or guys who are having big summers, all that kind of stuff that independent of each other, you kind of go like, oh, okay. But then you start to add them up and you're like, okay, actually something is kind of happening here. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing with Florida. What's, what's going to be big with them. It feels like is, okay, can we take some of this energy and, you know, how many of these guys take steps forward and how many of these guys are the guys they were last year. Right. And that's, that's true of all teams. Like that's not unique to them, but it does feel like a particularly pertinent question to ask of Florida as they go into next season is how much better are Colby Halter and Josh Rivera? And is there anything left in the tank for Raya Pell? And is, you know, what is Brandon Neely as a Sunday guy? Like all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does feel like there is something building here that we would not have anticipated just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, let's talk about the ACC of it all, Joe. Um, when I look at the ACC, it's a little hard to figure out right now. Um, and I think in situations like these, sometimes I default to like, well, who's usually good? And obviously in that this case that you know Louisville and Miami come up, Miami uh, was the best team in the ACC most of this year, or at least they appeared to be. Virginia Tech ultimately was. Um, the ACC champs, but uh, Miami was right there with them. We know what Louisville is as a program. Those two programs look very good going into this year. Wake Forest, though, might be the most talented program in the ACC, and we haven't seen a Wake team like this in, in a few years. But you know, UNC's losing a lot. Clemson has a new coach. Florida State has a new coach. Notre Dame has a new coach. There's just a lot of upheaval potentially in the ACC. I mean, where, where do your eyes go with that conference? <laughs> if uh, Wake Forest is so fascinating, man, because if they're like fair or not, if, <laughs> if you just took that roster and just like men in black wiped my brain and then, well, I guess that wouldn't work. Cause then I wouldn't know who the players are. <laughs> um, if you put another name, like if, if, if you gave me the players and all I knew about them was what they were as players. And then the team was just called something other than Wake Forest. I think I would be like all in on that group. And that's not really fair because all this core has done is make a regional last year, right? And win 40 games and, you know, get to the postseason for the first time since 2017. But there is some scar tissue from that whole group of players that was there in 18, 19, and then obviously 20 was, you know, burned, but then 21 that didn't really do anything. Um, So it's not fair to this group of players. I will acknowledge. However, that is a thing, but you look at th- this roster here where it's like Rhett Lauder, who is, you know, considered, um, you know, it's like he and, and Dolander in terms of you're talking about pitchers in this class of pitchers um, in terms of, of I've gotten just rave reviews on, on that guy. And obviously the numbers bear that out. But 
Teddy McGraw is not far behind. Like those are two guys who were on Team USA this summer. Brock Wilkin first rounders. Correct. That, Brock that's Wilkin, what we're talking about here. Yeah, Brock Wilkin could also be a first rounder. Might have the best power, you know, in college baseball. Uh, Josh Hartle and Danny Corona were elite, elite prospects getting to campus. Tommy Hawk was a freshman All American. Um, they've got a the American Athletic Conference. Freshman of the year, Bennett Lee at catcher when he was at Tulane. They've got Michael Massey, Tulane's most steady starter last year. They've got Sean Sullivan, one of the best starters in the Big Ten last year, coming in from the transfer portal. Um, like That's like an Omaha talent roster, full stop. But it's just that it's Wake Forest. That I think it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that this is what that team is. If that team lives up to its potential – it wins the ACC, I think, and it could be an Omaha team. Um, and then, you know, we have in this list, we have Miami and, and Louisville ahead of them. And I think that's absolutely the right way to approach it because Louisville's floor is incredibly high. We know what Louisville's going to be year to year. They proved it to us again last year, even in a year when we we did not think that was anything close to Louisville's most talented team that they've had in recent years. And yet they, you know, hosted a regional and, and came up a couple wins short of, of Omaha. Um, in Miami, obviously, we've talked about them and the talent there and, and you know, what they have coming back and coming in and Yohandi know, Morales, all that. But, man, this this Wake Forest team, if, if they end up clicking on all cylinders like this is a, you know, Omaha national title type of team. And that's not I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. No, I mean, it's. Uh, it's really, really impressive and. I do think like in some ways, maybe we're not being fair because if Wake Forest was more of a brand, they'd be rated higher probably. But the thing is like, I've, we've talked about this before experience matters and Wake Forest's, uh, you know, postseason experience for any of these guys is going one and two in college park last year. That's the full sum of their experience. Now I think the fact that they've been to a regional, matters i think the fact that they you know got into that environment matters uh but they ultimately like didn't play a night game even um in uh in that regional and so they were never in the the biggest moments um they haven't been to a super like like you're asking a lot of players to to break through and I think they can do it and they have all the talent in the world to do it. But to, to come out and say like, yep, that team's going to Omaha. Like that's, that's a big jump. Uh, they have the talent to do it. The upside is there. They, they absolutely have like, this is a, a program that has not been to Omaha since they won the national title in 1955. But if you look at the talent on the roster, that should be the expectation, not just the goal that they're working to, but like, that honestly should be what people are like sitting here saying, like, if they don't do that this year, like, what's it going to take? Like, that feels crazy to say, but like, that's what they, that that's the kind of talent this roster has. Yeah. And there's, and there's evidence too, that some of what ailed them in the last iteration of, of the program versus now has been at least partially remedied because a big issue they had was they had a, a decent amount of pitching talent. I mean, you know, I'm sure I'm going to miss a name, but like Jared Schuster, um, you know, worked his way into being a first round pick. There were other guys, um, but those guys never really put up numbers 
necessarily. And so there was kind of like, but, but I think you see what Rhett Lauder was from year to year, you know, in 2021, he had an ERA above six. And then last year he was the ACC pitcher of the year. That is an isolated example. I don't want to read too much into it. There were other examples. On the, I mean, Eric Adler took a step back last year, right? So you can, you can also give counter examples, but I think you can look at that and extrapolate that to like, okay, maybe there is a little more pitching development happening here now. And if so, that's obviously a really good sign for that group. Uh, what about Ole Miss, the, uh, the reigning champs, their team that kind of has moved around a little bit. They have had some portal success and then they had like a guy like Nick Pogue uh, sign out from under them, trying to come in from the portal. They lost a fair amount of talent, like a, like a pretty, pretty healthy amount of talent to, to pro ball. When you consider that, uh, Tim Elko, Kevin Graham, Justin Bench, Dylan DeLucha, Hayden Dunhurst are all gone. John Gaddis, um, those guys are all gone. It still looks like a really talented team, though, and they 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 grabbed a couple guys kind of late-ish from the portal that, that could be real difference makers for them. Yeah, and ultimately, I think a lot of what it comes down to is is how hungry are you, right? I mean, that, that's a cliche kind of thing. But I, I think there is something to it um, is how hungry is this group to kind of, especially when you consider there is some carryover, but it's kind of a, let's just say half and half kind of situation. Um, how hungry is this group to kind of make their own mark? You, you've got some guys who are in pretty important years for them personally, Jacob Gonzalez looking at being a first round pick. So, you know, um, does he have the, the, the stereotypical draftitis kind of season or does he, um, does he kind of springboard off of like, let's face it, like there were ups and downs for him last year. I mean, he, he big jump in power, but he hit something like 270 something. Um, so what kind of year does he have? I think there are a lot of little variables here. You know, is is Hunter Elliott, like, is he ready to make the leap? Or did we just see the best of him, right? Um, now you could play this game up and down the top 25, but I do think there are some specific things about this old Miss team that do put some question marks on it. You mentioned the portal guys though. Um, Ethan Groff, Anthony Calarco at Northwestern, like both of those guys, Xavier Rivas is a little bit of a, a mystery man. He's from division two university of Indianapolis, but the numbers are really good. Um, you know, so there actually is a pretty good track record. I would say in the portal, if, if a major program takes on a lower division guy, I tend to kind of believe that there's something real there and not just that they're taking a flyer on a guy um, because there are plenty of division one guys they could bring on to try to get that done. But the fact that they reach for a lower division guy, I think there's actually a pretty good hit rate on those players. So I'd like to think that he's going to be a big piece of it. So, you know, I, I think there are some question marks here, but yeah, it's look, I mean, um, a lot of the guys that came stepped forward for the rebels last season to lead them to a national title. When we talk about, you know, the Hunter Elliott and, and, and Mallets and, and Nichols, particularly on the mound and Kemp Alderman, guys like that, those guys are back. And so I think there is a little bit of momentum there for those guys that hate, you know, they played a bit, this wasn't just a bunch of veterans that led them to a national title. And now they're starting over a little bit. I think we saw a little bit of that with Mississippi state last year, where it was like the, some of the key veterans they lost, they just couldn't replace off that national title team. This is a little different deal, but I do think there is some variability in how hungry is this team and, and how ready are they to try to run it back? Or does, is there maybe a little bit of a reset happening? My question more isn't so much the hunger factor. I mean, the, I think they're going to want to win another one. Um, but the, 
what they are li- missing and and this it's completely unknowable how much of this mattered to Mississippi State, but there is some similarity here in that you look at Mississippi State that lost Tanner Allen and Rowdy Jordan. Um, those are two guys that just meant so much, like from an emotional, from a leadership standpoint. What does not having Tim Elko and Kevin Graham and Justin Bench? And Dylan DeLucia, what what does not having those guys in the dugout mean next year when the going gets tough for Ole Miss? Who's going to step up and take those places? And, you know, it's not like it would be very out of character if it was Jacob Gonzalez from everything that I understand about him, that he's just more of the quiet type. And that's fine. Like you, not everybody has to be the in-your-face leader or the not in-your-face. Like leadership's not something that we should force on just the best player um, just because they are the best player, but somebody has to step up and fill that void that Tim Elko is leaving. It's more than just the big, powerful bat that's going away from that. Um, so who's that going to be and how quickly that that kind of role can get filled, I think is going to matter a lot for Ole Miss next year. Uh, okay, so I'm really into Maryland next year, Joe. And um, maybe this is going to come as a little bit of a surprise to folks because Maryland's coming off of this sensational season. They won the Big Ten. They hosted regionals. That Those were program firsts. And so you might just figure like, okay, now they take a bit of a step back. But you look at it, and Maryland has what should be a really good one-two punch of um, Nick Dean and Jason Savakul in the rotation. They lose Ryan Ramsey. They get Dean and Savakul, and you know they have, uh, you know, uh, options for that third spot. Whether it's Kyle McCoy, who's a really talented freshman coming in, or you know some of their other younger pitchers last year step up into that spot. Uh, they lost uh, Chris Aline, who was their their All American. They lost Maxwell Costas, uh, and Troy Scheffler was a bit of a surprise uh, in the draft. But the rest of the offense is back. So that's like six regulars from the one of the best offenses in the country. And I'm really excited about what Matt Shaw can do. He's been really good on the Cape. He's been really good in college. Like, uh, that's really exciting for them. Like, I just, I think this team doesn't really have to take much of a step back at all uh, next year. And I think they can go again and make a run at the Big Ten and make a run at hosting. Yeah, remind me after we, we, uh, this is me doing housekeeping like on the air, which is good audio. <laughs> Remind me to uh, talk about AM once I finish talking about Maryland here. Cause like, that's an interesting team. I think that um, when we talk about compare, it, it made me think of it. Cause you talk about Mississippi state and Mississippi and, and that made me think of something with, with A&M, but yeah, Maryland is, I'm, I'm kind of with you on Maryland. And for no other reason than I think this is no disrespect to Chris Aline, who had a huge breakout year, big 10 player of the year. Uh, and, and Maxwell Costas, who was just the backbone of that program for, you know, four or five years, whatever it was, Ryan Ramsey, right. And, and Troy Schreffler, who you mentioned uh, somebody around the program, when I saw Maryland in February said to me that like Troy Schreffler is like a good weekend away from getting drafted basically. And it's like, I guess he had his good weekend. Um, looks real good so, in regionals. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Um, so there it is, but the best players on this Maryland team, like the balance of the best players on this Maryland team are still there and should in theory continually still be getting better. Right. So you talk about Matt Shaw, 
You talk about Jason Savakul in terms of on talent, those are probably the two best guys they got. There's also been a lot of positivity about Ian Petritz in the, in the Cape Cod League. You get a steady hand in Nick Dean back, who I'm convinced that I think there's a better version of Nick Dean to be found. Like it he could had just injury be injury issues last year, right? And it just wasn't quite the same. Yeah, he was awesome for the first like three weeks. And I saw it one of his best starts of the year against Campbell. And it was like, okay, here, here we go. Like he looks like the best guy in this rotation, which included Ramsey and Savakul. Um, and then yeah, he missed a start like in week four or five, and then he came back and was fine, you know. Um, and he was healthy enough to go clearly. And I don't know whether the injury was or wasn't something that was lingering. It just wasn't the same after the injury. And so in a world where he is more like what we saw the first few weeks than the last 10 or what have you, um, that's obvious. That's a real good steady hand at the front of their rotation um, or at the back of it, really. If Savakul is going to be your Friday guy, which probably will be like having Nick Dean as a Saturday or Sunday guy is a real good problem to have. So I'm, I'm generally with you on Maryland. Cause I think like, it's easy to look at some of the guys they lose and think about the big holes those guys left. But with the way they've been recruiting, uh, with some of the stuff they've been doing in the transfer portal, which I think is positive, um, and the fact that, look, their most talented guys in this roster might still be guys who are in the program now, um, I think it's all pointing up for for Maryland for sure. All right, let's uh, hit A&M since you, uh, you brought up the Aggies. Yeah, so like, what's interesting to me about this, we, we talked about them when we talked about the transfer rankings initially, right, when I put out the top 50. And we talked about how we were surprised that AM is kind of playing this game again, the transfer game. Um, and maybe it isn't a long-term thing. Um, they do have some BA 500 guys they're bringing in. So clearly they are doing some high-end traditional recruiting as well. But I look at the guys they brought in last year, right? And you look at, okay, Jack Moss, blue chip recruited Arizona State, put up good numbers of freshmen. Micah Dallas, proven Omaha level starting pitcher. Um, Dylan Rock bunch of home runs, bunch of doubles over four years at UTSA, like a 300 plus hitter for his career. Jacob Palish, all pack 12 type arm, right? And then no disrespect, but I'm, I'm looking at this group they're bringing in here and like, they know more about it than I do. So let me be very, very clear about that. This is not coming from a place of hubris on my part. Um, and I didn't mention Troy Clonch, by the way, like, you know, steady rock catcher, but it's, you know, the guys they're bringing in now just aren't quite that. And maybe they're looking at them more as depth pieces, whereas last year's group was more foundational pieces, right? Because they do return still, you know, Moss in addition to Targotch and Trevor Werner and Chris Cortez and, and Nathan Detmer is probably the best of that bunch. So they do have foundational pieces. They don't need as much reworking as they did going into the, the at this time last year. But if they're going to be playing the transfer portal game as aggressively as they're still playing it, like I say all that to say this group is not as star studded as that previous group. And if they are just depth pieces, I think that's great. Like Hunter Haas is a, a very good defensive infielder. Like I'm not taking anything away there. Like, you know, uh, Joe Powell is, has put up some numbers as a catcher at Cincinnati. Carson Lambert is a, a reliever with good stuff for USC. Um, it's just not quite the same level. So I'll be, I, I guess I'm filibustering here when I really should just say, I'll just be fascinated to see like, is this that, they have found value in the portal that some other teams didn't necessarily find. Maybe there, maybe there is something to this team is just really good at finding the right guys in the portal. I'm, I'm willing to accept that might be the answer or it might just be, you know, did they get a little bit overextended on the portal this year and end up taking some guys that maybe aren't going to be the types of contributors they need next year. And I think 
which end of the spectrum that ends up on will have a lot to say about how good they are next year. And um is a tricky team for me to try and figure out. Um, you think about like they don't go to Omaha without Jacob Palish, Dylan Rock, Trey Clonch. Those are you know, Dallas was very good for them, but I mean, maybe they could have found somebody different to step up in that role. But those three guys just felt like foundational pieces. They're all gone now, and that feels like it should be a really big deal. But they still do have guys like Jack Moss coming back, and Jack Moss was you know, their, their best hitter. And Chris Cortez probably has more in the take. And Nathan Detmer at times looked incredible. And so what does another year under Nate Yeski look like? I mean, that they feel like they, they should be very good. I like the freshmen coming in. Um, they're just tough to get a feel for. Like what does having veterans, like fifth year guys like Clonch and Palish in critical, critical roles of catcher and like fireman, what does that mean for the team and what does it mean without them with maybe more talented, like professionally talented tools, your players, but like, just not that experience. What, what does that mean next year? I, I don't know. And I'm fascinated to find out. No, I think, I think that's right. Like, I think they are like, I thought last year, Texas a was this big mystery team. And and by the way, they lived up to that, right? Like they were like exactly what they thought they could be like a big shoulder shrug in the preseason and a slow start. And then, Oh, they end up in Omaha. Like, of course they did. Um, I thought we'd know a little more about their general trajectory as a program going into this next season. And I don't, I mean, trajectory. Yes. It's all, I think it's all positive, but I mean, the certainty of the team in front of us, I thought we'd have more certainty about it. And we just, I just don't think we necessarily, do in a lot of ways uh all right so we're, we're, we're we could spend hours and hours on this and uh but then we wouldn't have anything to talk about the rest of the season so or postseason off season whatever season this is so i just want to like joe like from here not really interested in talking about the teams but I don't know how much this stuff is going to change from here on out. Like who is the best uncommitted player right now in the portal? It, it feels like with Skeens and Watts Brown committed, there's not a whole lot of like big, obvious impact makers sitting out there waiting to be had. Yeah. The fact, I mean, I just scrolled over to my spreadsheet and I could sit here and like scroll through it and really try to give you like a, a, a real answer. But the fact that I don't have anyone in mind tells you, like all you really need to know about what's left in the portal. Like I, there might be a couple of guys in this list that would crack the ultimate top 100, but the number of guys who are left uncommitted, um, they, they could make the, the final top 100 list is really, really small at this point. Um, these are all for the most part. Now we're looking at depth pieces at, at best. So I guess the point of this is we'll update this again if we need to, uh, but I, I, I don't have any like grand designs of updating this again at the end of August or something like maybe we'll update it at some point during the fall. Like that's been a thing that we've kicked around and haven't done in the past, but might do this year. Uh, or maybe this will be the last update before the, uh, the official preseason one that drops in January. Uh, but things should be much steadier now. That's why we took the time to talk about it now, especially is that, uh, we are in a, a position of knowing a lot more about what we know as opposed to knowing that things will continue to change through the draft and, and transfers and the like. So uh, this is 
this is what we got at least uh for the next couple months i would expect um so hopefully you enjoy it you can dive deeper into it uh on the website we have capsules for the top 25 teams and you can see who's coming back and who's leaving and who the top newcomers are and all the rest of that so check that out at baseballamerica.com joe and i will be back here for another edition of the baseball america college podcast next week so if you're not subscribed make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher wherever you get your podcasts hit the subscribe or follow button and leave a rating and review if you can, we appreciate all of that. Next uh, week, we'll probably have a guest here uh, and we'll be asking them, or we'll, we'll continue with our guests throughout the rest of uh, the off season, uh, looking at some interesting programs and people uh, from around college baseball. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And all of the content can be found at baseballamerica.com. Uh, you, there's a lot of pro content there right now, especially coming out of the trade deadline. So if you're curious about who the top prospects were that were traded this week, uh, we got everything you want to know about them uh, over on the website as well. Busy times for the, the pro side uh, as we, Joe and I, enjoy summer here on the college side. Hopefully, though, you stick through the summer and the fall with us uh, here on the podcast. We'll continue coming at you uh, once a week. So until next week, for Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.